Grab your Bibles. We're back in 1 Peter today. After taking a short break last week as we talked about uh, just a pause to talk about justice, we're going to be in chapter 2, continuing on uh, in our series, and we're going to start in verse 18 and go all the way through uh, verse 25. And so, of course, today we're going to finish chapter 2, so I'll have you, as is our tradition, read these few words with me out loud. And then we'll dive into the scriptures. Let's read together. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a beautiful day, a beautiful weekend, Labor Day weekend, where many in our country sort of mark the transition of summer to fall. And we pray that just in our hearts, God, that you would help us to transition from all the heaviness, God, all the things that we've been through over the last six or seven months in our country, God, that, we would help, that you would help us to see a new season bringing new opportunities. Lord, as we turn to your word today, uh, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see what you would have for us today. This is a heavy topic, talking about suffering, and no one, first like, firstly, we don't want to suffer, and we don't even want to talk about suffering, because it reminds us of all the ways that we do suffer. And so, God, give us a special grace today to, uh, to, uh, to, to listen intently with the, with the ears of the Lord, and for our hearts to receive that which you want us individually and corporately to receive from this, this word. We pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. So we've been working our way through 1 Peter, uh, and really since chapter 2, 11, um, we've been in this section of the letter where, Paul, where Peter is um, getting into the practical implications of the gospel. Peter's focusing uh, us on the responsibilities that we have in two main parts of society. Two weeks ago, we talked about our responsibility as citizens in a civil government. That's uh, verses 13 through 17. Nick preached that. 
two weeks ago. And in our passage today, running all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, so that means this is a, a, a mini theme within Peter's letter that we're going to sort of see run through our sermon uh, to, uh, next week. Peter's talking about the Christian household and the family. Um, Peter is giving us an apologetic of sorts. Uh, he has an agenda. He's aiming to help these young believers, these believers who have been marginalized and ostracized in the community that they're in. He's, he's helping, he's aiming to help them by the way that they live their lives to show the difference that the gospel makes in the life of the believer in the world. Right? So that's, that's his aim. And the backdrop of his apologetic is that they should respond, is how they should respond to suffering. To, to those moments where life pins you in or life seems like it's not how it's supposed to be and you're experiencing injustice. How, how does the gospel show through all of that? Peter's men mentioned the possibility of, several, uh, of suffering several times in this letter. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6, he spoke about his readers being grieved by various trials. Only a few verses north of, of, of what we're reading today, chapter 2, verse 12, he reminds us that we are likely to be spoken against as evildoers if we follow Jesus. All right, so it's not an if suffering happens in Peter's vernacular, it's, it's when, that as a believer, you're going to experience suffering. And that's what he says beginning in our text, verses 18 through 25. And he's going to continue that on through the, through the end of the letter. It's as if he's taking this idea of suffering to another level. In fact, he's going to focus in on it and make it more pronounced for us. Peter is saying that if we are faithful in living for Jesus at some point, those around us are not going to respond well. They're going to respond negatively towards us and towards our message. They're not going to like us and they're not going to like the, the message coming out of our mouth. And so as believers following Jesus, we should expect that. We should expect uh, negative reactions to Christian faithfulness. He's saying, don't be surprised when people call you narrow-minded, when they dismiss you as bigoted, when they call you and tell you that you're hateful. Because to follow Jesus is to stand apart from the moral chaos. To follow Jesus is to embrace specific convictions about God and about our neighbors. It's to follow uh, specific convictions about God and sin and salvation, about ourselves and one another that oftentimes run contrary to the popular stream, right? That, that, that run contrary to pop culture. And in fact, if you find yourself as a Christian going along with everything around you, then perhaps you're not being Christian enough. And I'm saying we, 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 don't, we don't operate as Christians in our own strength, but I'm saying Christianity goes against the flow and you should find your life and even your thoughts going against the flow of some of the things that you see around you. And so First Peter is designed to be a part of a, a, a handbook for what it means to suffer well for Jesus in hostile venues and in unfavorable situations and even in matters of injustice like we talked about last week. And in that Peter is writing to a marginalized people who are living under very harsh predicaments of life with no way out, the question that he's answering for us this morning is, all right, so I'm a, I'm a Christian living in this harsh environment. I mean, how do I handle that? Like, how do I live for Jesus in these difficult circumstances? If How does following Jesus inform the way I behave in oftentimes intolerable conditions that are imposed upon me? And so with that, I've only got one point. It doesn't mean I, I don't have a lot to say, 
But I got one point, and I think this is the point that Peter's making for us this morning, and it's simply this. We need grace to suffer. We need grace to suffer. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Um, what sticks out here is obviously the, this idea of, of household servants. Uh, a couple of translations to include the NIV uses the word slave here. Typically, when we see the word slave used in the New Testament, it's the Greek word doulos and slave. So this is a different word. And so it has a slightly different meaning. But for all intents and purposes, uh, these household servants are a type of slave. As Americans, whenever we hear the word slave, we automatically go to enslave, the thought of enslaved Africans who were brought here in the 1600s and, you know, and, and all that, that chattel slavery was in the United States. And to, to, to be sure, these household servants were a type of slave, but it wasn't like chattel slavery in the United States. And so there's a, there's a, there's a difference there. Uh, Roman slavery, which these household servants would have been a part of, wasn't necessarily race-based. Most household servants and slaves were made servants either through war. Think uh, the, the, the Roman Empire reigned for 1,500 years as the you know, biggest, baddest nation on earth. And all the nations they conquered and they, those people, they made servants or slaves. And so these slaves were made slaves through war or poverty or they were kids born uh, to enslaved parents. Uh, servants and slaves uh, could actually be well-educated, which is very different than uh, uh, African slavery in the United States, right? They could be ed educated. They could hold professions such as doctors and teachers and shipbuilders and artisans, things like that. And that all depended on the status and the character of their masters and their mistress mistresses. And their typical duty was to manage the household. That's why they were called household servants. But still, the life of a slave was difficult. And that's why Peter is talking to them. They, they, they lived a very subservient, difficult life. They had virtually no rights. They were, uh, they were um, basically thought of as property, property of a master or a mistress. And that, and that master or mistress could do whatever they wanted to with their property, be it abuse them or sell them, separate them from their family, both physical and, 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 and um, um, sexual abuse was, was prominent in this type of slavery in Peter's day. And so Peter's addressing these household servants because with the minority position of the New Testament church in this era, there was little prospect of any kind of immediate social change that would get them out of that particular predicament of slavery. In other words, they were stuck in a bondage and nothing was going to let them go. And so to the question, how do they live for Jesus as slaves so they, they, they come to faith while in slavery. And so Peter's like, well, how do we how do we live for Jesus when I'm serving a pagan household and I can be told to do anything that my master wants me to do? And then and, and look what Peter says in verse 18. Peter calls them to honor the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The, thing, the words that stick out to me are the mindful of God. This is an important phrase. And here's what Peter's saying. He's saying the only way for any of us to endure uh, suffering, the only way for us to endure unjust treatment is for us to keep our minds set on who God is. 
There's, there's no other way for you to get uh, through difficult things that come to you. To be fixated on God and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus is the only way that we're going to endure, particularly when you're being treated unjustly. There's no other way to endure unjust treatment and do good to those who do evil to, to you without your mind set on the one who gave us mercy instead of what was rightly deserving of us. He's saying, have that kind of mindset. God meets out justice, but he does it not on us who trusted in him. He, he places that on Jesus. And so Peter says, be mindful of God. And it's important that we, um, that we acknowledge who's saying this. This is Peter who sticks his mouth, his foot in his mouth before he talks, right? This is Peter who's impulsive and says whatever, you know, whatever comes to mind and sometimes gets it wrong. This, this is the Peter when Jesus, you know, when, when Jesus tells the disciples that I'm going to Jer- Jerusalem to die for the sins of our people. And what does people say? What does Peter say? Peter says, Lord, Lord ain't no way I'm going to let you do that. Like, my Lord and Savior is not going to do anything like that. So Peter is uh, uniquely um, qualified. He, he's no stranger to, having, to, to not having the things of God in mind. He's the right person to, to give us this instruction to be mindful of God because Peter remembers not, not being mindful of God's purposes and what Jesus is about to do. And in all of that, Peter is thinking uh, temporarily. He's thinking like a human. He's not thinking like Jesus wants him to think spiritually, eternally. But I think what's key, is he, key here is, is that Peter doesn't know that he very much needs the thing that Jesus is going to do for him as he dies for him on the cross in his place. Because after this scene where, where Peter tells uh, Jesus, of course, uh, that he's not going to go to the cross for him, what is, remember what Jesus says to Peter in, in that regard? He says, get behind me, Satan. That's an encouraging word, right? Would you want someone that you know that you love to tell you, get behind me, Satan? Here's what Jesus has in mind for Peter. He says, Peter, you suffer not the things of the Lord, but of the world. In other words, Peter, your burden is for a, a human fleshly burden. You don't want me to go anywhere because you like me. You love me. Well, I have a bigger purpose in mind. He's telling Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Again, Peter is no stranger to, ha- to not having the, the, the mind of the things of the Lord. In fact, as the, the, the gospel story goes on, Jesus is arrested. Uh, and as he's under trial, Peter's right there as, uh, as Jesus is, is in trial. And what does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times, even calling a curse upon himself. And then shortly after that, Jesus is on the cross. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross with his blood being spilt, Jesus yells out these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Peter would have been in that crowd. Peter would have heard those words from Jesus and he would have felt the pain in his own rejection of Jesus. And we don't know when this happens, but at some point it very likely hit him. We know it does hit him because he's given us these words here. It hits him that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to the cross for him. This Peter who who says to Jesus, don't go, Jesus. Don't suffer unjustly, Jesus. Don't submit yourself to unjust, evil people, Jesus. Don't put yourself in a position of being treated unfairly, Jesus. Peter has the epiphany that if Jesus doesn't do what he does on the cross for Peter, then Peter is left to save himself from his own sins. Peter would be the one getting what he deserved, punishment for sin, separation from God eternally. But instead, this great exchange happens. 
Jesus takes his place. Jesus suffers under the hands of sinful, unjust people. He cries out for forgiveness on the cross, which affords Peter and people like us who follow in Peter's steps the forgiveness and salvation that can only be ours if Jesus does what he does, suffering unjustly. So being mindful of God, it's acknowledging God has a mind bigger than yours. Have you ever thought about that? Part of being mindful of God is to, is to acknowledge what the Bible says about God, that his thoughts aren't our thoughts, that his ways aren't our ways. God's, God has a mind bigger than your mind. God has thoughts that are higher than your thoughts. God has ways that are different than our ways. Perhaps there's some of you that are here that are saying, or that you're in a predicament and you're saying, man, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I've got this horrible thing going on. I've got something that's, that's, that's happening and it doesn't make sense and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. And sometimes we think that God is in heaven wringing his hands as he sees us struggling with the, with the cares of this world and that God um, can't respond on our behalf. Well, can I encourage you? God is not wondering what tomorrow holds. Your God has not lost control. God is not some cosmic God who sets the universe in motion and then steps back. He's very involved in the details of our lives. He's very involved in the details of our world. And I think in the moment where we are in a predicament where we're saying, man, this is horrible. How can I ever get out of the situation that I'm in? I'm being oppressed. Things are going against me. I think that's when God looks at us, looks down on us, and he's saying, man, you have no idea of what I'm about to do in and through you in this moment, even in the suffering that you're experiencing. And that's why Peter is saying to us, we should be mindful of God. Why? Because he's mindful of us. He sees and he knows. He's very mindful of us. Therefore, we should be mindful of him. Peter also wants us to know that this is a gospel thing. Looking back at verse 19, his wording for this is a gracious thing. Peter will say that phrase a couple of times in this text. And what he means here is that we cannot endure suffering without some measure of grace, favor, like that comes from outside of us. There's nothing in us that's going to help us endure. We need help from God. We typically define grace as unmerited favor. That's, that's uh, I shouldn't be loved by God the way that he loves me, but I am. I shouldn't, be for, I shouldn't receive the forgiveness of sins from God like I have, but for whatever reason, he's given it to me in, in the person of Jesus. And so grace is not just unmerited favor, it's also divine empowerment. And that's how Peter is using it here in our text. Divine empowerment. God steps into your life and he gives you his resource. He gives you his strength. He gives you his ability to endure all that you are going through. God gives you things that you don't have inherently to yourself to help you uh, do all the things he's calling you to do. Grace is God's very presence and his power to live the life that you couldn't without him. Important words. Grace is God's very presence and his power to live a life that you could not without him. And Peter wants us to see is that when you step into a place of unjust suffering, when you're being treated wrongly, whether that's at work in an employer employee relationship at school with a bad teacher or a teacher that's, that, 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 that doesn't have your favor in mind or any other kind of, of, of marginalized position that you might be in, you're able to bless those who curse you. Like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, right? 
turn the other cheek, that you're able to do good, do good to those who don't do good to you, that it requires you to have the grace of God to get through it. That's why historically we give so many props to the civil rights movement, right? Because uh, these were people who chose to turn the other cheek. They chose, to, uh, they chose a nonviolent means of bringing about change when the system, even of our government, was against them. Which means you'll experience the grace of God being poured out of you, poured out of your life, right, as it's being poured into you. God is enabling you to endure all the suffering that you're, you're, you're experiencing, but he's also pouring out grace through your life, which hopefully will leave other people to wonder what in the world is up with you. How is it that you're able to withstand all those things that you are withstanding? Someone says this. It says the Bible calls us to live the, the, the kind of lives that deserve a gospel explanation, which means to live the kind of lives that we would not, could not without Jesus. And you know you're doing just that when you endure unjust suffering. And all the while, perhaps you're in a predicament where you're saying, God, you got to help me. God, you got to empower me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Jesus, give me only what you can give me because I can't do what you're even requiring me to do as a person of faith without your help. And so, Transit Church, this is the life of a Christian, someone who's not only changed, but empowered to do something outside of themselves. Verse 20. Peter says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's giving us a differentiation between a guy or a gal that says, you know, my boss fired me and it was warranted. I'm a, I'm a terrible employee. I'll endure that. Or perhaps a, a, a young girl says, I didn't get a raise, but I didn't deserve it. I mean, I didn't even meet my quota for the last two quarters. It's OK. I'll endure it. It's bad, but I'll, I'll be all right. Peter's saying it, like stuff like that. You don't deserve to brag about that because you haven't deserved any credit. But then look, look, look what he goes on to say. He says, but if. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing. We see that word repeated again, a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a gracious thing in that God's empower, and God has empowered you to do what you couldn't in and of yourself. You're living in a way that you couldn't live without him. The older I get, the more I go along serving Jesus. I'm convinced God never calls us into a life that we could live without him. Would you agree? God never calls us into a life that we could live without him. You ever heard somebody say, you know what? God wouldn't call us to do hard things. Our God wouldn't make us suffer like that. Our God wouldn't make us do something that like, we can't do with the tools he's already given us. And I would say that person hadn't read the, the, the God of the Bible I'm reading, right? That's not the same God you and I serve because God shows us examples in scripture, and we can even see this in our own life, that God calls all kinds of Christians to do things that are beyond our skill level and beyond our strength and even beyond the level of courage that we have to do the things he's calling us to do. Think about Gideon. You ever read the story of Gideon in the, in the book of Judges? God uh, sends an angel to Gideon, and the angel shows up and says, hey, mighty man, 
Now, if you know the story of, of, of Gideon in the Bible, Gideon was anything but a mighty man. In fact, when we meet Gideon in the book of Judges, the, the, the text tells us he was threshing wheat in the wine press, which I, I don't want to explain that to you, but it just basically means he was, he was hiding. He was trying not to be caught. He didn't want his wheat to be taken away from, from him. And so he was, he was doing what you do with wheat in a place where no one would expect him to do it. And so the angel comes up and says, hey, mighty man. And you got to know Gideon was, uh, you know, he's one of the most insignificant men from one of the smallest clans of the smallest tribes in all of Judah. Hey, mighty man. And I got to tell you, Transit Church, um, it, maybe not angels are showing up, but God does, does this to me and you all the time. He shows up in our lives. And, and here's what he says to us. Hey, Jeff. I know you got nothing, right? I, I like, I'm going to do some good through you because I know it's not in you to do good. So when you get any accolade, when you help a person with their marriage or you say something that's going to help someone uh, through a difficult situation, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to do it because people will know it's not you, it's me. I, I'm going to get the credit. And that's what's happening in the case of Gideon. Gideon, God calls Gideon mighty because God is going to do something through him. He calls him to, to amass an army. And then God, what does God do? He, he whittles that army all the way down to this insignificant size so that they're going against this horde of, a, of an enemy, an enemy force. And when God gives them this great victory, everyone knew Gideon could not have done that. Right. So the credit goes to God. So maybe just maybe transit church. There's some of you that God is calling you into something like that, a difficult position where, you know, you don't have the wherewithal to, to do the very thing God has tasked you to do. And if you're looking at it from an opportunity and you're saying, man, this is too big, it's too much, it's too hard, I can't do it. Guess what? You're in the place God wants you to be. You're exactly where he wants you to be, because in that moment where you realize I can't do this in my own strength, you can say, oh, God, only you can make this happen. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your provision and strength. I need you to show up and help me. And this is what our gracious God does. He aims to show the world how gracious he is to, to mighty men, mighty men. Right. And I say that pejoratively, because when God says mighty man, he's talking about people who are weak and small and broken and overwhelmed by the world around them. And such are we. And he does that. He's gracious to us to show the world and teach us that he's enough. God is teaching the world how gracious he is. He's showing and teaching us that he's enough if only we would trust in him more than we trust in ourselves. I'm preaching to myself. Amen. All right, I'm going to take a break from my, uh, from from a text real quick. I want to I want to give you um, these are ways that we tend to react when we are treated unjustly, right? I'm not I'm not getting this from the text. I'm actually getting this from psychology. Uh, I, I'm getting this from how we like, like this just as humans how we typically react when we are. Um, when we're being sinned against, when we're experiencing suffering. And so you've heard of the phrase, what would Jesus do? These would be, these are the things Jesus would not do, right? These are sinful ways of reacting. And so here's the caution, as I'm calling these things out, 
Uh, we all tend to one or more of these when we're suffering, when we're suffering unjustly. And the first of them is ways do we, ways do we uh, tend to respond to uh, injustice. Uh, we respond with revenge or retribution. We want vengeance, right? Somebody wrongs me, I'm going to wrong you back. I'm going to wrong you harder than you wrong me. We want justice. We'll fight for it when we've been unjustly treated. You see this in Peter's life. So in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the soldiers come. They're about to, to arrest Jesus. And in one gospel, they say uh, the high priest is there and one of his servants is there. What does Peter do? Peter draws his sword, cuts that joker's ear off, right? And of course, Jesus being kind and, and, and generous, he, he, he mends the guy back together. This is, this is Peter's response. All right, if, if I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to wrong you in, in, a, in, a, in a bigger, more demonstrative way. But, and I want to be very tender about how I talk about this. This is what we see going on in the streets of America right now, right? There's, there's an injustice that's been happening for years to people of color, particularly uh, black people, black men. And regardless of what you, what you think about what's going on in our country, the response that you see in the streets is kind of like this. It's, it's, it's the response to injustice, and it's a response of revenge and retribution and, and sometimes vengeance. And I have to qualify this. I'm not talking about the protesting. The protesting is a part of our First Amendment right, right? And we want to see that happen. That's taking action and lifting your voice for, for ways that our government is supporting, isn't supporting people that it should support in its citizenry. What I'm talking about is the looting and the, the vandalism and, and stuff like that. And to the credit of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's, it's not much of that going on within that movement. It's people who have come along and taken advantage of the situation that are producing anarchy. But, but, and, and so I'm not talking politically about this idea of responding to injustice. I'm just saying this is how we, this is, this is humanly, right? If you're going to wrong me, it is in me. I'm going to wrong you back, and I'm going to I'm going to bring out a bigger stick than you did. Boom! And I'm going to like I'm going to try and crush you. Here, here's my point: when we respond to injustice with injustice, when we respond to injustice with revenge or retribution and vengeance, it generally leads to more injustice. That's not what Jesus would do. Those who are treated unjustly are on the edge, and so we act out in revenge or retribution, and oftentimes it multiplies the injustice. In the relation, on a relational level, this leads to more division, more slander, more gossip, more bitterness. And when we come together collectively, organizationally, oftentimes it leads to more rage and outrage. And of course, that's what we're seeing in our country. Um, here's the caution I want to give. That, that when we who have been treated unjustly think we deserve to respond in kind because, of our, act, because our actions are more just than the person who's, who's making me suffer, we've got to beware. Why? Because a lot of times that just means we're, we're displaying our pride. I, I'm better than you because uh, you, you, you hit first, I'm going to hit back, and my hit is warranted, and I get to do it harder. And so I'm not saying that we shouldn't want justice. We should want justice. What I'm saying is a lot of times um, those who are on the receiving end of injustice aren't seeing clearly in the moment. Uh, let, me, let me give you a picture. Say you're, uh, you're in court, you're, you're a defendant, and the bailiff says, all rise, and we all stand up, and the, uh, the judge is coming in. 
But instead of the judge having on a black robe, being this dignified man or woman that you know is going to judge justly, out comes a policeman and he is escorting a dude in an orange jumpsuit and he's still in chains, hands and feet. And everybody's looking around, it's like, well, where's the judge? And the, and the, and the guy in the orange jumpsuit says, hey, I'm here, I'm the judge today. And we're all thinking, wait, 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 I, I want a fair judge. I want a just judge, right? And the thinking that we will all commonly have is, I don't know if I'm going to get a fair hearing if the just judge is a guy who's been in the justice system himself. We don't want that. And the, the, the thing that I think we, we need to be, uh, that I'm trying to bring out with that sort of simple explanation is, we want a righteous judge, but none of us are. That's oftentimes what happens when we're, when we're meeting injustice with, the, with injustice of our own. Here's what the Bible says. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have a, a skewed perspective. And so when you judge others because of their injustice, just so you know, you're also wearing an orange jumpsuit. All right, that's a tender subject. I'll move on. Here's the second way that we respond. We respond with self-pity. This is the woe is me response. This is my life is a pit. Everyone's against me. This is the mindset of self-loathing and, and being preoccupied with myself. These are people who are insecure, but they're also prideful. People who respond to injustice this way are, are, are Debbie or Doug Downers. You're a Debbie Downer. Everything is negative. Like it could be a beautiful day outside like today, like gorgeous day. And that person is thinking about, well, 30% chance of rain, probably going to be followed by a hurricane, right? It's just, it's just doom and gloom. And, and if this is your response to injustice, it just leads to hopelessness. It leads to apathy, and it also leads to a lack of, lack of love of other people. If you're certain the world is always going to turn on you, then you're going to be less hopeful about the whole world and the people closest to you, because everybody has the capacity to let you down. Thirdly, we respond with resignation, stoic resignation. This is the view that the world is messed up and broken. This is the good theologian response. This is, this is like, all right, so this is me. This is many of you in this room because we've been trained as evangelicals to think like this. We've been trained to see the world like this because if, if we're not careful, we'll have this kind of apathy about, about everything. Like if, if, if we're all sinners, we all have this propensity in us to, to do wrong only by the grace of God and am I not doing the things that are wrong in the world, then everything is bad. We'll, we'll get to the place where nothing is ever going to change. We're convinced, our, we've convinced ourselves we need to get used to the fact that people are just sinners and the world is broken and it always will be until Jesus comes again. And, and here's the point with that. It, it leaves us so paralyzed about the condition of our world that we become apathetic, right? And we end up doing nothing. And, and, that's, and that is my biggest, biggest concern for congregations like ours. It's not that we wake up and we're going to, to be the worst people or think badly about other people. It's that we, we have this theological perspective like, like we're all sinners and, I mean, there's nothing I should, I mean, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders and just go on about my, my business. Swipe left on my iPhone, on to the next thing. People who respond this way to injustice lack joy in relationships because they are, they're certain everyone is going to fail. It's just what they do. Lastly, we respond with self-effort. And these are people who say to injustice, I, I can fix this. I can overcome this is one more form of prideful self-exaltation. 
It becomes all about me. I can make this happen kind of self-talk. And of course, it's good to have a a good self-image of ourselves. It's good to speak of ourselves positively. But the caution here is if we're always completely thinking about the other in these terms, uh, uh, of their well-being only depends on, uh, on you. Let me say that again. It's completely other to think that your well-being only and always depends on you. Like you have to get yourself out of the predicament that you're in and there's no one else that that can come alongside you and to help you do that. And so you feel like you got to control and and overcome the world all by your lonesome. And the problem with this is of course it leads to pride and to arrogance. All right, so I could probably name a dozen more versions of this, of how we all respond to, to injustice. But I think in all these cases, in whatever the venue they might be, and how we respond to injustice, the tendency is, it's the behavior of the other, whatever that other is, that controls how I respond, right? I'm just, it's, it's tit for that, tit for tat. It's what someone else does that determines how I respond back. And, and, and I bring all that up to point us again to Peter's stance. Peter says he wants us to be free people. In fact, he says that way up in verse 16. Live as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, Peter says. Peter says, don't be controlled by something or someone else other than Jesus, the one who is setting you free to live the life that he's given you to, to, to live and empowers you to endure suffering and not be controlled by the one who's actually causing you suffering. That's a hard thing to do. Moving on, verse 21. For to this you have been called. What's he talking about here? Yell it out. What's he talking about? He's talking about suffering. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in in his footsteps. Peter is letting his readers know this this is not a mistake. This is not God's plan B. God doesn't go, "Uh uh-oh, how in the world did they get here? I didn't mean for them to get stuck like this. This is a part of our calling. He says, for to this you have been called. When he says that, he's talking about suffering. And a question that, of course, we have, and I'm sure the, the first century church had this as well, is why in the world would God call us to suffering, particularly suffering that's unjust? And I think Peter has a response for us in these next few verses. When, when Jesus lives and dies for you and then rises to new life, he doesn't do it just so you are forgiven of your sin and you go to heaven when you die. We make that mistake as Christians. to think that all, that all my salvation is doing for me is making it so I can go to heaven when I die. That's a part of the story, of course. But he also does it so that you can be a picture of what God is like to the world. God is using you as a picture of his graciousness, of what God does for you. He does also through you so the world can see the love that God has, not for people who he loves, but people who are his enemies. And such were some of us. So the world can see the love that God has for all of us that treat each other in very unjust ways so that he can not just forgive us, but change us. Right. Uh, A couple verses down, we're going to see this in a couple seconds. Peter will say, by his wounds, we have been healed. That's God's hope for us, is that we wouldn't, he's not just putting a Band-Aid on the outside, he's healing us from the inside. 
That's, that's the change that God wants to exact in our life so that you will be a picture of that change. Verse 21 continues, and I think we don't want to miss these words. He says, so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus hasn't called us to this stationary life, but a life of following, of following in the steps of Jesus. And, and when you think about following in the steps of Jesus, think about where Jesus went. Did he go to a picnic? Actually, he might have gone to a picnic. Did he go to the ocean to fish? Did he go to, you know, lackadaisically going, just going about his day? Ultimately, Jesus went to a cross, right? He went to a cross, a place where he suffered. And here's what Peter is not saying here. He, he, he doesn't say, when you experience injustice, get them back. Get that hammer out, and as hard as you've been hammered, hammer even more hard. That would be retribution, right? He doesn't say, that's just the way it is. This is our fate. It's broken and sinful world. There's no way we're going to get around it. What's that? That's resignation. He also doesn't say, buck up, camper. We got to get through this with all of our might. What's that? Self-effort. Here's what he says. He says, you're called to endure and to do good to those who do evil to you so that you might follow in Jesus' steps. For to this you have been called, Christian. Some of you thinking right now, it's like, Jeff, I don't want to be called to something like this. I mean, who wants to endure suffering, particularly suffering that's, that's, that's unjust, as all suffering feels like it is? Here's, here's Peter, Peter's words to us. If you're a Christian, you have been called not just to know Jesus, but to know him intimately. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I've decided to, I've decided to know Nothing except Jesus and him crucified. The, the, when you see the word know in the Bible, it's talking about intimacy. It's not talking about cognitive knowledge, like I know facts about Jesus' life, but I know the living Jesus. I know the person of Jesus. It's to become acquainted with him, to become one with him by the Spirit, to understand who he is and what he's done for me, because I've entered into his, his suffering. Paul says in other places, I have determined to know him intimately in the fellowship of his sufferings. And so God calls us to suffer so that we might truly know as a servant, as a suffering servant who willingly went to the cross to die for sinners like you and me. And in the way that you really come to know the depth of his love for you is when you associate with his suffering, when you join in his suffering, when you suffer for his sake. And those things that he's not saying, like, like submit yourself to the worst, baddest um, thing that can come along. He, he, what he's saying is, this is going to happen because you're professing the name of Jesus. And so being mindful of God, when people unjustly treat you, and yet you still love them and forgive them and you're gracious to them, this is what God has called us to in Jesus what you're doing is joining in the suffering of Jesus and what he's done. Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so our response oftentimes, firstly, to, to when we experience suffering and injustice is we cry out for retribution and vengeance and, and revenge. Here, Peter is reminding us there's only one who, who, who's the, the perfectly just, and that's God himself, right? There's only one perfect, just judge, and that's God. 
And, and Peter's reminding us, he's telling us to remind ourselves that only God judges justly. We need to be reminded that he's going to bring about justice. And, and for those of you in the room who are experiencing injustice right now, for those of you in the live stream, like you got a, a, a difficult situation brought about at work or perhaps in your family or in your neighborhood, amongst those who you know, those people who are, are marginalized because they're poor uh, or they're an immigrant or uh, you're, you're a marginalized person of a racial group. I mean, you know what injustice feels like, right? And so the question we have is, I mean, how do I know that God judges justly? And the Bible answers that by telling us to look at the cross. If you want to know how much God loves you, but yet hates sin and brokenness, we look at the cross. God's not just standing by letting things happen. He steps into our brokenness and he takes it upon himself. Last two verses, verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in the tree on his, uh, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Uh, Peter is reflecting back on Isaiah 53, where Isaiah in one of four passages talks about this suffering servant who would give his life, his body would be marred, his, his whole world would be turned upside down, that he would serve those who are coming, that he would die in their place for. And of course, the New Testament tells us that this suffering servant is Jesus. And uniquely, Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And when we compare that to what he says in verse 23, that Jesus entrusts himself to the only one who judges justly. Here's what we come away with. Jesus on the cross, he's not hanging there going, man, you're all evil. Don't you know that God hates you, that he's going to um, be against you? He's going to strike you down. He hates evil. He hates all the sin. He hates you. There's no gospel writer that says those words. Instead, they say these words of Jesus. I've not come to condemn you, but to save you. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus entrusts himself to the only one who judges justly. And not only did he know he was paying for the sins of the world, he also knew that at the end of the day, those who reject him would ultimately get justice. And so for those of you who suffer unjustly, that really is your justice. Not that you can exact vengeance or retribution or revenge on those who treat you badly and make you to suffer, but that there's a coming a day where we'll see the wickedness of sin like we've never understood it. Why? Because we'll see the righteous one, righteous one for all that he really is. There's coming a day where Jesus will make all that's wrong in our world right. And the just one will judge justly. So if you are on our live stream, or even if you're here in person with us, if you don't know Jesus, here's what the Bible says. Today is a day of salvation. God invites you to receive the forgiveness of your sins so that when the day of judgment comes, you are judged justly and you aren't answering for your own sins because you can't. There's only one person that's ever lived that can answer for your sins and be judged justly, and that's Jesus. For those of us who know and love and follow Jesus, this is our hope, that we will one day have clarity on our need for the cross like never before, 
And in that moment, we'll find ourselves overwhelmed with the joy of our salvation. Why? Because we'll know that we rightly deserve the condemnation of God, but that God has instead extended us grace and mercy. God will judge justly. And, and as I close, here's what the Bible is not saying. The Bible is not saying that God is pretending that injustice doesn't happen on our earth and that he doesn't care. God cares, and we know he cares. How do we know that? Because he sent his son to die. God cares enough for Jesus to give his life as a ransom for many. God cares about us enough to, to have Jesus cry out for forgiveness from the cross, and he promises thus that justice will come. And so we hold on to that hope even as we suffer in this life. And I'll conclude with this. I think here's the verdict for us. Jesus says it rightly. Peter says it rightly. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. For those of you that are, I mean, and I speak particularly to, um, to people of color right now in the, just the, the, the difficulty of being in, uh, in America right now, where you feel like there's an injustice happening, it's happening systemically, and there's no way out. That all the protesting and uh, the lobbying has, has, has got, not gotten, gotten many places. Here's the prayer that I would encourage you to pray. Pray this. God, will you do something about the injustice I'm experiencing? I know Jesus died for it, but I'm experiencing something that's kind of painful, and I need you to deal with it. I entrust myself to you. Let the people say amen. Amen. Worship team, come on back up. We're going to sing a song with the worship team, so go ahead and stand up, folks. Sing a song together, and Pastor Nick will come up with a special presentation and a response with giving and communion.